With respect to what John has just said, I think uh, that's what makes a meeting like this so beautiful. Joseph's coat was made up of many colors, was it not? And we have various shades and hues and colors here from various places and backgrounds. I might say about all of the men who have spoken and taught us this week, I know that you have heard what these fellows have said, and I know you think you understand what they said. <laughs> but I'm not sure that you know that what you heard them say is what they meant. You understand that? Okay. Well, as I have said earlier, hermeneutics is the science of interpretation. It comes from a Greek word meaning to translate or interpret. And theologically, hermeneutics is a science of interpreting the scriptures. But there are several classes of theological hermeneutics extant among all churches, even among our Calvinistic, Sovereign Grace, and Reformed churches. I came across an article, some of you may have seen it, it was entitled Hermeneutics, Rank and File Hermeneutics. And uh, the two authors, Higginbotham and Patton, mentioned several different classes of hermeneutics and pretty much matched what I had in mind. So I'm going to, to use their particular classifications. First, there is what we might term institutional hermeneutic. And uh, this hermeneutic may be defined like this. Hermeneutics is the function of the teaching office of the church. An assertion is reliable only when it carries the imprint and official stamp of approval of a person authorized to speak for the church. This view, best represented by the Roman Catholic Church, but by no means limited to it, says in essence, it is true if the church says so. Now, this view is perhaps better termed ecclesiasticism, which is salvation through the church. And this hermeneutic takes for granted that whatever church is under consideration is trustworthy in all matters of faith and practice. Perhaps you've heard of the conversation between the two people, one of which held to an institutional hermeneutic, and one said to another, what do you believe about God and salvation? And the reply was, well, I believe what my church believes. And uh, what does your church believe, the other asked. And he said, well, my church believes what I believe. Well, what do you and your church believe? Well, we, we believe the same thing. Now, the person who subscribes to this view settles all theological questions by asking, what does my church believe? In this way, one does not have to study, show himself approved unto God, and if, heaven forbid, such a person should ever hear something from his church that he or she differs with, they simply find a church that agrees with him, and in this day and age, that is not a difficult thing to do. When I first came up here a few days ago, I 
was watching TV and we came across a channel and there was a Catholic priest with a lady. She had a children's program and she had the Catholic priest on there to explain the Mass. And among other things, he said that when they took the wafer and after it was masticated and swallowed, the priest was very precise. He said it was the physical body of Christ and it remained in them for about, he said, 20 minutes. 20 minutes. And the woman not only did not ask how Christ got in the wafer, literally, but she didn't question why he would say it was there for 20 minutes. I would have been interested in that 20-minute theory. Of course, you know that's called transubstantiation. Trans means across, substantiation from substance, changing the substance, moving the substance across. So that's institutional hermeneutics. Then there is what we might call clergy hermeneutic. And this view advocates that what the clergy approves is true. We often hear the objection, well, that sounds real good. But that's not what Dr. Sounding Brass and Professor Tickling Symbol says. <laughs> of course, the case here is the same as with institutional hermeneutics. If you don't like what doctor, the doctor and the professor are saying, you simply go somewhere else. In the third place is what may be called creedal hermeneutics. And this view says, it's true if it's written in the ancient and venerated documents of faith. And by this they mean creeds, catechisms, confessions, books of church order, or church covenant. According to these two authors, and I quote them here, quote, the creed was written with the intention of ending debate and is less susceptible, therefore, to being treated as a nose of wax to be pinched and molded until its shape pleases us, end of quote. Now, what is the disadvantage of creedal, of a creedal hermeneutic? Well, it's very simple. The disadvantage is that those creeds were written by well-intentioned, but nonetheless uninspired men, subject to the same errors and prejudices as the rest of us. Then there's the individual hermeneutic. Now, this view locates truth within the individual interpreter. It says, I've studied the Bible, I've prayed about it, I have peace about it, and therefore it's so. I'm as much a priest as you or anybody else. I have the Holy Spirit, I have the Bible, I have within myself all that I need to arrive at truth. And what other Christians, past or present, have to say is not important. I am a priest before God, and I have the task of determining truth on my own. As an alternative to these various systems, these two authors suggest that applying hermeneutics to the Bible, and I think there's a lot for us to learn here, is a science that needs to be performed by the body. Let me tell you what they mean. They say that if we, that three things here, they have three things in mind, three guidelines to aid in accomplishing body hermeneutics. First, verbal agreement with one another, and I'm stating this so you can understand it. 
In other words, as Christians, we don't just sit down and say, now let's you and I agree on A and B and C. And then we'll talk. We don't do that. But I'm, I'm delivering a lecture here. Verbal agreement with one another that a believer's first loyalty is to Christ and not to a theological system or organization. Secondly, verbally agreement, verbal agreement that since spiritual unity in Christ is real, nothing need be omitted from dialogue. We've had that this week. We would call that, I would call it, sessions of constructive argument. And thirdly, verbally agreed to actively seek out believers came from different backgrounds and traditions in order to hear them and do theology with them. Now, personally, I believe that this is very close to what we are attempting to do here in this particular John Bunyan conference. Most of us have come from various backgrounds. We've had various experiences. We've been influenced by various authors and schools of thought. But we've come together in this conference to hear from one another and to dialogue and to learn from one another and to test our hermeneutics by comparing them one with another. Then I might add most of us will return home triumphantly while the others who were wrong go home licking their wounds. <laughs> In all seriousness, I'm sure that if we will ask the Lord to enable us to keep an, try to keep an open mind, because we're not talking to a person that does not take the Bible seriously and is not a believer. And brethren, don't use the don't use the smoke screen when you're talking to someone. Well, you believe the Bible, don't you? They believe the Bible. They see it differently than you. I learned in the Scripture that when men approached Christ, he received them on the basis of what they professed. That young man said, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he, didn't, he said, you know the commandments, so all of these I've kept from my youth up we would have torn into him and say, wait a minute, man, let me tell you. Christ, he said, well, if you've done that, then give all your goods to the poor and follow me. He went away sad for he had great riches. I've learned that in the scriptures, when men approach Christ with a question, he usually first asks them a question. That's because asking a question, number one, causes the person to open up within their assumptions. That is, it causes them to say, wait a minute, what is the basis of the question I'm asking you? See, lots of times when people ask you questions, they haven't really thought about it. They're just quoting somebody else or saying what somebody else says. You ask them a question, learn to ask a question, and it makes them open up within their own assumptions. Secondly, it gives you an entrance point into the matter that is at hand. And I think we need to try to keep an open mind toward one another's understanding of the Scripture, and we'll profit. All right. Let me now, and I'm skipping some material, but again, if you want these notes, I'll send them to you. I'm sure I won't be able to finish all of it, but uh, you'll get it all, and uh, I'll probably, some of it is some grammatical errors and so on, but I'll try to send it to you. It'll be basically what I've presented here to you. Let me present now some presuppositions concerning or especially applied to the matter of what we now call promise fulfillment theology. I'm sure that most of you understand this, but there are lots of people who believe it, but they don't understand why. 
And again, I'm trying to lay block by block. I'm purposely trying to do that. Number one, the plan of redemption is the purpose of God to save a people unto himself. The plan of redemption was between the divine persons of the Godhead before the foundation of the world. I personally do not subscribe to any sort of, and I'll qualify and clarify this in a moment, a Batarian view, that is the Father and the Son, where's the Holy Spirit? If I'm going to have a, if I were going to have that approach, I would have a Tritarian view. I'd have all of the persons. So I've purposely shaped my words. The plan of redemption is the purpose of God to save a people unto himself, and that was before the foundation of the world. Now, with respect to God's intentions before time, the scripture speaks of them comprehensively as an eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. In 1 Timothy 1.9, Paul encouraged Timothy, don't be ashamed of Jesus Christ, don't be ashamed of his gospel. For he said, he has saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Now this purpose of God is elsewhere called a decree, a determinate counsel, and foreordination. Our Lord Jesus Christ called this same purpose of the triune God his Father's business, the work given him by the Father, the will of him who sent me. It's clear to me that in such passages as John 17, verses 1 and 5, it was the eternal purpose of God to glorify his Son in time, space, and history. There our Lord said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son may also glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. The purpose of God to glorify the Son through the redemption of, uh, through redemption, was for the elect only. The purpose of God to glorify the Son through the redemption of a people was for the elect only. Thus all the covenants of history moved toward the historical redemptive act of Christ in history. This means that the new covenant is final and fulfills all that was ever promised before. I will mention a few of these covenants, all of which you are, with which you are familiar. When you read the Bible, if you've got your concordance, the first time you're going to find covenant, the first covenant made in time mentioned in the Bible was the covenant made with Noah, in which God purposed to save Noah and his family from the coming deluge, thus preserving a remnant for the sake of his eternal redemptive purpose in Christ. And the sign of that covenant was the rainbow. And its purpose was to demonstrate to all the earth that God would not destroy the earth again by water. 
the second covenant made in time was with Abraham. Genesis 15, 18. Abraham asked the Lord, Lord, God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? The steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. Behold, thou hast given unto me no seed, and lo, one born in mine house is mine heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir. But he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad, and he said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Now the Apostle Paul tells us in the fourth chapter of Romans, that Abraham was justified by faith. And he tells us, brethren, that that justification was some 13 years before he was circumcised, which was the sign of the covenant. And I think it is also significant that Paul gives us three examples of righteousness by faith, that is, imputed righteousness, in Romans chapter 4. And in each of these three persons that Paul sets forth, they lived during three entirely different eras or dispensations. He mentions Abraham. Abraham lived after Adam, but before the law. David, David lived after the law, but before Messiah came. And then the writer, Paul, who wrote the epistle, who was also justified by faith, he lived after the Messiah came. And he says that all of these people were justified by grace through faith, or by faith. So Abraham became the father of all who believe, whether Jew or Gentile, whether before the law was given to Israel or after the law was given. I'll only br briefly mention here the Davidic covenant. God made a covenant with David. The purpose, I believe, was to assure him that a man in his line would sit on the throne forever. God made a covenant with Israel through Moses, which was the law. The sign of the Mosaic Covenant, I believe, to be the Sabbath. This covenant was made, I believe, with the nation of Israel only. And as Paul says in Romans 9, 4, he says, Who are the Israelites? To whom pertaineth the adoption and the giving of the law? And then in Romans 2, 4, he says that the Gentiles have not the law. And I think Scripture shows us very clearly that God did not command Adam to keep a Sabbath day. But he did command Israel to do so. No other nation, I believe, or people was given the law or commanded to keep the Sabbath day. And let me say at this juncture, at the risk of being misunderstood, that there was no grace in the law and that Christ as Redeemer was not in the law. Now, I'm not speaking of the graciousness of God. He was gracious to Israel in giving them the law, but he did not give the law to save them by it. Thus, I mean, there was no grace in the law. John tells us very clearly that the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And to me, this statement would make no sense if grace came by or through the law in any kind of redemptive sense. If grace was in the law, then Christ would be in the law in a redemptive sense. The law was given to Israel as a ministration of death and not life. Paul makes this clear when he contrasts the new covenant with the law. 
And he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that God has made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. And in verse 9 of this same chapter of 2 Corinthians, he calls the law the ministration of condemnation. The law promised life to anyone and everyone who kept it, and death to all who transgressed it. And I think it's also vital that we understand that God did not give the law with certain divisions or headings, such as moral law, civil law, ceremonial law. Quite often, a so-called moral law will be linked with a ceremonial law. When you read the Bible, you'll see a moral law. The next verse, there'll be a civil law. The next verse, there may be some other kind of law. God did not give two or three separate laws to Israel. He gave the law. To keep the law, one must not only keep the Sabbath days, but also the sacrifices, the ordinances, and even observe the dietary laws as well. So someone may say, well, Brother Sasser, what about sin? How will we know what sin is without the law? Well, ladies and gentlemen, neither moral obligation nor sin began or ended with the law given to Israel. Paul says in Romans 5, 13, For before the law was given, sin was in the world. But Brother Sasser, isn't the transgression of the law sin? Yes. 1 John 3, 4, transgression of the law is sin. But so is lawlessness which is really the correct translation of 1 John 3, 4. Now let me ask you, did Adam sin? Were the Sodomites who vexed a lot with their unlawful deeds sinners? Did Cain sin when he murdered his brother? Did the angels that kept not their first estate sin? But how was that possible when all of that happened without the Mosaic law? It happened because God was holy before he gave the law. It happened because there is an eternal standard of righteousness, which is the character of God himself. God did not suddenly begin to punish sin when he gave the law to Israel, but he punished sin even when it occurred among the angels. And he did so because he's always been holy and sin has always been hideous in his sight, whether committed before the giving of the law to Israel or after. That is, although the principles of the law existed before Sinai, the law as a body did not. The law given to Israel, I believe, ended in an historical sense when Messiah established the new covenant. That is, the ministry of the law that began at Sinai ended when Messiah came. God had promised Abraham a seed through whom the world would be blessed. In the meantime, the physical descendants of Abraham were given the law until that seed should come. But when the promised seed came, the law given at Sinai was abolished. Through faith in Christ, we're children of Abraham, and we walk in the steps of Abraham, who was never under the law. Rather, we're under the covenant of promise made to Abraham 430 years before the law was given. We are not under the covenant of law given at Sinai, because we're not under Moses, but under Christ. Now, I, ha I have noted, as I'm sure you have, but I haven't even opened the Bible. I want you to turn to Galatians, please. I've done this purposely. I could have had you turn. We could say a few things, but in order to move along and to get as much said as I can, 
I've just mentioned the scripture, oftentimes telling you what the essence of the scripture is without quoting it. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 6. A lengthy portion, but I'm going to read it for you. Verse 6, Galatians 3. Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness, know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident. For the just shall live by faith, and the law is not of faith. But the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or atteth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. This I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul, that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. And I go to verse 24. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now the new covenant is spiritual in nature. God writes it on the heart rather than on stone. He ministers life rather than death. The new covenant is final. No covenant will ever take its place. The new covenant is distinct from the covenant of law given at Sinai not another administration of it. We read in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Now let me see if I can go over some of this, summarize it, and if I have time, make a comment, and that will be enough for us to think about. First of all, 
God's eternal purpose to redeem is from all eternity. The focal point of this eternal purpose is to exalt Christ. This means that the direction of human events is but the historical process moving toward Christ through the messianic line which becomes Abraham's seed. This means that all covenants in time move toward the historical redemptive act of Messiah. There is no mention, brethren, of a covenant made with Adam, of an Adamic covenant. Well, you say, what do those words mean to Adam? Well, Genesis 1.28, he said, be fruitful and multiply. Genesis 1.28, he said, have dominion. Genesis 1, 29 and 30, we find that God gave Adam all that he needed to obey. In Genesis 2, verses 89 and verse 15, God said, keep the garden. Genesis 2, 16, he said, you may eat of every tree freely. Verse 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt die. You say, what does that mean? Just exactly what it says. But there's not any mention there that God says, all right, Adam, I'm going to settle up with you now, and here's my rule book, and these are the rewards, the prohibitions, and so on of this covenant. The covenant is not mentioned. There is no mention of covenant. I've told you the first mention of covenant in Scripture is with Noah. And I believe that if you do some research, you're going to find that a covenant is always related to time. Now, do God's commands or prohibitions to any man or woman necessarily mean that God is entering into a covenant with that person? No. Now, when I first came to know the Lord, I read a lot of the old Puritans and the old writers, and many of them encouraged me as a lost person. I read Joseph Aline's Alarm to the Unconverted and others, and I was encouraged as a lost person to make a covenant with God in order to be saved. Well, although there is a sense in which I enter into this in Christ, there's no such teaching in Scripture for you to enter into a personal some kind of covenant with God in order to be saved. Now, the Messiah was promised in Genesis 3.15, I think we believe, the first mention of the Messiah. With the murder of Abel, I believe, God begins to divide humanity into, as far as mentioning in the Scripture, the Messianic line, the godly line, and the ungodly line. When Cain was born to Eve, the first human being who was born a sinner after Adam and Eve were made, I believe that Cain is thus a picture of the works of the flesh. When Cain was born to Eve, she said literally, and I have researched this, she says literally, I have gotten the man from the Lord. It appears to me that Eve thought that perhaps Cain was the promised seed of the woman. The Messiah. You know what Cain means? It means gotten or acquired. But as I've just said, and as it shortly appeared, Cain was a product of the flesh, not the result of the promise of God. And this is shown at least in three ways. His offering of the fruit of the ground, 
which was the result of his own toil and labor, indicate this is the case. Secondly, his refusal to offer a sacrifice of blood. I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 4 for just a moment. And I hope I'm not chasing rabbits here. I think I can make a point. Genesis chapter 4. I'm saying that Cain is representative of the flesh, a product of Adam and Eve trying to produce the promised seed. I'm saying that this is shown, first of all, in his offering of the fruit of the ground, which was the result of his own toil and labor. And I want you to notice in Genesis chapter 4, verse 6, the Lord said unto Cain, why art thou wroth? Why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. Now, brethren, I believe this is an unfortunate translation here, because what I believe the Lord is saying is this. If you have brought to me an offering and I have refused it, don't be cast down just at the door. There is a sin offering. Sin is at the door, and unto you shall be his desire. Your sin typified in this sin offering. And I believe that Cain refused to offer a sacrifice of blood, which was a sin offering. And this indicates that he is a man of the flesh. And of course, the third indication that this is so is the hatred and murder of the righteous one, which was Abel. Now, when we get to Genesis 5, it's significant that in the light of this, that when the genealogy of Adam is recorded, neither Cain or Abel is mentioned. But the first mentioned one is Seth. Why is that? Well, Cain is the firstborn. He represents the old covenant. He represents, uh, he represents the flesh. I'll just say it that way. I won't say the old covenant. He represents the flesh. He's a product of the flesh. He manifested the deeds of the flesh. He's rejected. Abel was the secondborn. He was given of God. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 11:4 that Abel was righteous. Abel was given of God. He manifested what we call the deeds of the Spirit. He brought blood. He was accepted. And he was murdered. Seth was given of God as a substitute for Abel. Therefore, I believe that Seth is a type of Christ. The name Seth means appointed or put, that is, promised. Seth is a type of Christ. Therefore, when Seth had a son, it tells us here, his son's name Enos, men began to call upon the name of the Lord, Genesis 4.26. So then as early as Genesis 4 and 5, we see that the direction of human events is but the historical process moving toward Messiah through the godly line to Abraham and his seed and onward to the birth, life, and substitutionary offering of the body and soul of Christ in order to fulfill the redemptive purpose of God, whence purpose was determined before time and space in history. Now, after Christ's death, 
and resurrection, after his birth, death, and resurrection, this process goes out to all nations in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, which I believe is set forth for us in Galatians 3, verses 8 and 9. It says, And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which are of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Now, brethren, there were significant covenants made in time. But there's no mention of a covenant made in eternity. Now, I have said there was an eternal purpose of God to exalt Christ. On that, we're all in agreement. But all covenants that I can discover mentioned in the Scripture were made in time. The Noahic covenant, to preserve the line of the Messiah, those promised in him who were not yet born. Rainbow, the Abrahamic covenant, to demonstrate the righteousness by faith as an act of God. Abraham was 99. Sarah was 90. No way in the world they could produce a child. Shows the miraculous power of God, symbolizing grace. Circumcision, the sign of that covenant was 13 years after Abraham was counted righteous. So circumcision did not in any way contribute to the imputed righteousness of Abraham, but was only the sign of it. And it follows, of course, that the sign of righteousness ought to follow and not precede righteousness itself. I find, as I read the New Testament, that all of the Jewish believers, and the first believers were Jews, who had been circumcised the eighth day, nevertheless confessed Christ in baptism. So if we want to be a sticker to that, then after you are sprinkled as an infant, you need to confess Christ in baptism when you come to faith in Christ. Let's be consistent. We're going to parallel that with circumcision. Let's carry it right on over there and say, okay, fine. We'll sprinkle you when you're eight days old. We'll watch the clock and make sure that's precise. But then when you come to faith in Christ, you need to submit to believer's baptism because all the Jews did that in the New Testament church. The Mosaic sign, of course, the Mosaic covenant, the sign was the Sabbath, made with Israel only, the purpose to show the transgressions until the Messiah should come. Galatians 3.19, Wherefore then serveth the law, it was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. We are told in Galatians 3, 4 that the purpose of the law was as the pedagogos, the schoolmaster, to bring us, and I believe historically, to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we're no longer under a pedagogos, a tutor. Then it was the Davidic covenant, the promise that David would always have a king to sit upon the throne, 2 Samuel 23, 1 through 5. Of course, those promises can only be fulfilled in David's son, that is, the Messiah, who is David's Lord, Jesus, King of the Jews. New covenant. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Christ was the testator. Hebrews 9, verses 16 and 17. My father died in September of 92. And his will did not become effective for me until he died. When the Lord Jesus Christ died, he said, it is finished. Now, we take that to mean, number one, 
the culmination of the eternal purpose of God is finished. 1 Peter 1.20, he was fairly, verily foreordained before the foundation of the world, but man has fested in his last time for you. We take it in the second place to mean the culmination of the historic process. Galatians 4 and verse 4, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son. The ordained plan of God prior to history and redemptive history came to focus in fulfillment only by Christ as the testator, sealing the new covenant with his blood. And this blood was foreordained in eternity and typified in the sacrificial blood of the era of the law. So the conclusion is that Christ fulfilled the Father's procreation will and all the promises made in history to the fathers. Romans 15, 8, Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Now there is no mention whatsoever, as I've said, of a covenant of grace that stands above history. If there is no covenant of grace that stands above history, then there cannot be various administrations of a covenant of grace. The concept of a covenant of grace with various administrations of that covenant is the foundation of several unscriptural practices and teachings. I'm going to only mention a couple, and then I'm going to give you some points, and I'm going to stop. Infant baptism. This is what John Murray said in an article or a book, Christian Baptism, published by the Presbyterian and Reformed Publishing Company, page 71, quote, It is because there is such evidence of the perpetual operation of this gracious principle and the administration of God's covenant that we baptize infants. It is for that reason alone that we continue to baptize them, end of quote. The rationale here is that since infants were included in the old covenant administration of the one covenant of grace, we are to suppose that infants are also included in the new covenant administration of this same covenant of grace. Now, with a one covenant, various administrations view, what's wrong with that? First, if we have that, there can be no progress in redemptive history leading up to what's called the fullness of time. Secondly, there can be no completeness and finality of the new covenant manifested in the last days, as it says in Hebrews chapter 1. He hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. Thirdly, if we have a one covenant various administrations view, theology, there can be no radical difference between the Mosaic covenant and the new covenant, as is set forth in such passages as we've heard this week, Jeremiah 31, Hebrews 8, 6 through 13. The covenant of grace idea, various, one covenant, various administrations, assumes, in the second place, not only such things about infant baptism, but that in some sense Christians are under the Ten Commandments, but that civil and ceremonial laws were done away with in Christ. In order to take that position consistently, you must have a one covenant, various administrations view. And I want to say again what John said. That 
little booklet back there with a the green cover on. Uh, Gilliland, invaluable. He established this contextually. I think you would find it very good. You should read it. That the one covenant, various administrations, you may know this, but I think he spells it out for us, is the bottom line to much error today. Now, what's wrong with this as far as the law is concerned, saying that we as Christians are in some sense under the Decalogue or under the law? Quickly. First of all, as I've already said, the Bible gives us no division of law into categories, such as moral law, civil law, ceremonial law. Secondly, the law, when spoken of in this sense, is always spoken of singularly. That is, the law is one. It is viewed as a unit. Thirdly, the law was done away with in the establishing of the new covenant, according to 2 Corinthians 3, verses 11 through 13. Fourthly, the house of Moses is finished. We're now in a house whose head is Christ. Hebrews 3, verses 5 and 6. Fifthly, Christ's kingdom is not of this world. It cannot really be identified with any particular political secular order. John 17, 14, John 18, 36. In the sixth place, the Mosaic era with its national theocracy and shadows gave way to a kingdom whose subjects would experience the realities promised and offer spiritual sacrifices. 1 Peter 2, 5, Hebrews 13, verses 15 and 16. Seventhly, New covenant subjects are under the law of Christ, Galatians 6.2. Eighthly, whatever law binds the Christian is in the hands of Christ, not Moses. Moses' covenant is abolished, replaced by a better covenant. Christians obey Christ because the Spirit of Christ is in them. Matthew 28.20, 20, 1 John 2, verses 3 and 4, 1 John 5.3. Ninthly, with a change in covenants, there is of necessity a change in law. Hebrews 7, 12, verses 18 through 22. So we might contrast it this way. Last passage, and I'll let you go. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I hope that you will... Pardon me, I know you've been most gracious, it's most kind all week, but I know that the mind can only take in what the seat can endure. And uh, so I've skipped over some things and I've tried to be light in order to spare too much tediousness. But let me just summarize this for you. Second Corinthians chapter 3. Now you notice, <clears throat> verse, uh, for example, verse 12, seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. Not as Moses once put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished, but their minds were blinded. For until this day remains the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, 
When it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Spirit, the Lord, is that Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now I think I can contrast very quickly, by way of a simple illustration, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant mentioned uh, in verse uh, uh, 14, uh, and the New Covenant uh, in verse 6. Verse 6, who also made us able ministers of the New Covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. The Old Covenant, the mediator was Moses. That gives way to the New Covenant, the mediator is Christ. The Old Covenant, the law of Moses, gives way to the New, new Covenant, the law of Christ. The Old co Covenant, ministry of death. The New Covenant, ministry of life. The Old Covenant, ministry of the letter. The New Covenant, ministry of the spirit. The Old Covenant, written on stones. The New Covenant covenant written on the heart. The old covenant, fading glory. The new covenant, abiding glory. The old covenant, ministry of condemnation. The new covenant, ministry of righteousness. The old covenant, from Hebrews 10:9, a disobedient people. The New Testament, new covenant, an obedient people. Hebrews 10:10. The old covenant, people who as a whole do not know the Lord, Jeremiah 2.8, Jeremiah 4.22, Jeremiah 9.3. The new covenant, that old covenant, people who do not as a whole know the Lord, gives way to the new covenant where all know the Lord. The old covenant, theocracy, church, state, united, gives way to a spiritual nation among the nations, which cannot be identified with any particular political order. And with that, I will conclude. I want to take a break, John? You want to come up and whatever? He said a mouthful. If you ask me what I believe and you'd like to hear it spelled out, you just did. The two, uh, the book he mentioned this is Towards a Biblical Hermeneutic. I really would urge you uh, to get this. I was absolutely amazed when I read it. And uh, John Gerstner, who is probably one of the best students of Edwards in the world today, has said for many years that if Edwards would have taken one more step, he'd have been a Baptist. And uh, he told me in a conference I was in with him, he says, if you want some good arguments for your Baptist hermeneutics, he says, study Jonathan Edwards. Because when he did battle with the halfway covenant people, that's exactly what he was saying. And then the other book is Randy's little book on the rent veil is what uh, Pastor Sasser was talking about this, this afternoon. Uh, one statement that he made that... Uh, by itself could be totally twisted 
and that is when he said the law does not have grace in it and Christ is not in the law. Uh, that's a statement, by the way, right out of John, John Owen in his great sermon on Romans chapter 6, verse 14, you are not under the law but under grace. And John Owen says, Christ is not in the law. But before he made that statement, he took quite a lengthy time to define the word law. And he said there are basically two uses of the word law in Paul's theology. And the broader word law really means scripture or revelation. And he says Christ is in the law when it means the Old Testament scriptures, the whole Mosaic economy. The law is there in the types and the shadows so that there is grace in the law if it means the scriptures, if it means the Old Testament revelation. But then he says the other meaning is law as covenant. Do this and live. And the whole of the Old Testament economy considered as law as covenant does not have grace in it. The Ten Commandments in the box does not have an ounce of grace, but it was the most gracious thing that God ever did was to give them that law to convict them of their sin. And this really points up the basic error in covenant theology is it totally confuses the gracious purposes of God and the eternal purposes of God with a covenant of grace made with Abraham as the believing father and his seed. And they have this covenant of grace which they bring down into time which doesn't exist in the scriptures. But God's gracious purposes exist, and the gospel is in the Old Testament, and men are saved by grace through faith. Men today are under objective revelation of the rule of their life. And when we say that we're not under the Ten Commandments as the rule of life, all of the morality contained in the Ten Commandments, we are under that as a rule of our life. I cannot for the life of me understand how people keep calling us antinomians when we keep insisting that the Christian is under a higher law in Jesus Christ. Tell me how higher law can be turned into anti-law. I cannot understand that, and yet that's what we're accused of. And people say, I do not believe that Jesus Christ is a new lawgiver. He is a law keeper. And I say, he is both. <laughs> he kept everything that Moses said and gave some higher, newer ones and went way past what Moses ever did. So just don't take that word, Christ is not in the law, to mean Christ isn't in the Old Testament scriptures, Christ isn't in the Mosaic economy, Christ isn't prophesied there. It's when law is considered as a covenant. And those are the two ways that Paul uses uh, that phrase. And then one other thing before you start your questions and run him up a tree as far as you want to, uh, is letter and spirit. And for many years, I used to think in terms of the letter administration and the spiritual administration, and that the new covenant is the spiritual administration of the one covenant of grace. If you study 2 Corinthians chapter 3 very carefully as he was expounding it this afternoon, the letter is not the legal administration. The letter is the old covenant. The old covenant is the letter, and the spirit is the new covenant. 
And the old covenant is done away, meaning the letter is done away, and now the Spirit has come, and now the Spirit writes the law on the heart.